Well, we are in the book of Judges, and we've been discussing a central theme that is consistent throughout this book. Instead of looking at the book of Judges as a character study and going into the 12 different judges that we see throughout this book, we're, gonna take it from a, we're taking it from a different approach, and we're looking at a consistent theme throughout this book. And it's the theme of spiritual entropy and how we stop it from happening in our lives. Now, entropy is the idea that over time, things will naturally, naturally begin to move towards disorder and chaos in our life unless we intentionally address it. It's what happens when you don't pull weeds in your yard or your garden. If you leave it unattended for a certain period of time, you have weeds that sprout up. It's what happens if you don't pick up your house Uh, guests come over and you don't clean the house and pretty soon the mess builds up and it starts to, it starts to move naturally towards chaos and disorder. And it's what happens in our relationships. When we do not, when we are not intentional in our relationships, our relationships tend to fall apart when we leave them unattended and unaddressed. And, you know, last week God began to reveal in me how I've fallen into spiritual entropy, that I've been neglecting my devotional time. He began to reveal this to me after last week's message, that I've been neglecting my devotional time outside of my sermon preparation. And I have to be careful not to confuse sermon preparation and quality time with God. It's a, it's a, it's a tendency that I have as a pastor is because as I prepare each week for a message, I'm not just thinking about, I'm not thinking about how I'm receiving it. Some, some, I, I try to do my best to do this, but oftentimes I'll prepare a message and, and I won't stop to think, how is God speaking to me this week? And I don't spend quality time with God. And he began to reveal this to me. And I've been angry and short-fused at home. I want to zone out when I'm with my family and, and disconnect when I should be present with my wife and my kids. And so, so last Monday I went fishing. And Rich Bickle showed me his secret fishing spot. Thank you, Rich. And I caught, I caught two trout at your secret fishing spot. So thanks for showing me that. And, and this was a time for me to align my heart with God. And he began to reveal the things in my life that I have just let fall away. That I've just, I, I, haven't, I haven't attended to, I haven't tended to them. I haven't, I haven't been intentional in certain areas of my life. And so I've become angry and short-fused and feel disconnected. And this is what happens in our lives is when we, all of us can experience something like this, is that when we leave things unattended, when we leave our relationship with God unattended and we're not intentional with him, things naturally move towards chaos and disorder. Maybe you've been there and you know what I'm talking about. And, and in this time of Israel's history, the people of God, they get used to God's blessing and they become complacent and they fall into a vicious cycle of sin. And we talked about this last week. And that this cycle of sin or this cycle of spiritual entropy, it repeats itself 12 times throughout the book of Judges where the cycle always begins in a season of peace where People are prosperous, they're blessed, and, and after a certain amount of time when you, when, you, when you disconnect from God or you're not, intentional with your relation, you're not intentional in your relationship with God, in seasons of prosperity and when things are going the way that you want them to go, what do we tend to do? We tend to put our Bibles on the shelf and they collect dust and, and, and we forget about quality time with God, and eventually we start seeing things sprout up in our life because God has not, 
We haven't let God be in those places in our life. And so Israel, they're in this season of peace. They've moved into the promised land. And they've, they've conquered Canaan. And they're finally living in the land that's been promised them for centuries. But what happens? After a certain amount of time, they take God's blessing for granted. And they fall into complacency. And they start to listen to their neighbors and the people that they didn't fully drive out from the land. The Canaanites, they, they didn't fully drive out from the land. They worship other gods. And they become complacent and they start acting and modeling themselves a little bit like these other people. And what happens next in the cycle is they move from complacency to sin. They fall into full-on idolatry. And, and after sin, there comes pain. And they're taken over. And the story that we're going to talk about in Judges 6, Israel has been taken over by the Midianites. The Midianites have come and they've oppressed God's people. And after so much pain, what does Israel do next? They cry out to God for deliverance and say, God, I'm done living like this. I don't want to do this anymore. Does this cycle sound familiar in our lives? Have you experienced this cycle like I have as, 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 we, as we grow complacent, as we fall into sin and as pain comes? And, and, and because sin always, bring pain, sin always brings pain in our life, doesn't it? And when the pain comes and it, it becomes too much to bear, then we cry out to God for help. And then what does God do next in the story? God sends a deliverer. He sends a judge. His name is Gideon. And Gideon comes, and he defeats the Midianites, and he saves God's people. And as long as Gideon is alive, Israel experiences peace again and prosperity. But once the judge dies, they slip back into the cycle, and it repeats over and over again. See, the people of God, they never learn their lesson. And we are prone to fall into the same cycle unless we identify the signs of spiritual entropy and intercept them before the cycle runs its course. And so last week, I mentioned that throughout this series, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to talk about eight signs of spiritual entropy and how we can intercept those signs. And the, la- the first two that we talked about last week was, number one is, we do not fully address the remaining sin in our lives after receiving Jesus. How Israel did not fully drive out the Canaanites, but they left them there. Just like when we receive Jesus, we often give God 98% of our life and we withhold the 2%, right? We withhold our credit card. We withhold that relationship with that person. We withhold this addiction or this pattern or behavior. And it's that 2% that God says, I want you to eradicate it. I want you to drive it out. I don't want it to live there anymore. I don't want it to stay in your heart. And if we do not fully eradicate the sin in our life, if we don't fully surrender it. Now, I'm not saying that we live a perfect life, but I'm saying that we submit our whole beings to God. We give him everything we are. We give him all that we are. And if we do not do that, then we're prone to fall into the cycle. The second thing was we do not passionately and consistently impart the faith to the next generation. In Judges chapter 2, verse 10 that we talked about last week, it mentioned that a generation fell away, but a new generation grew up that did not know the Lord, nor what he had done for their ancestors. That this new generation, their parents and their grandparents never told them about who God was and what he did in their life, how he brought them out of Egypt and provided for them in the wilderness and brought them through the Red Sea. They did not tell their children who God was. And as a result, a generation grew up that did not know the Lord. And so the cycle repeats. And in our lives, when we do not pass on our faith to our kids and our grandchildren, our culture, it it, it slips into this cycle 
of entropy, and we're experiencing this now, today, in America. Just like Europe experienced it years ago, America has experienced it. Where we are, uh, statistics would tell you that that church, the church, big C, is in decline in America. But I believe that God is doing a new thing in the church. That He's breathing, uh, He's breathing a fresh move of His Holy Spirit. He's sifting His church, and the followers that emerge, the believers that emerge in this next season, are going to be a sifted, tried and true generation of people who are passionate about modeling their life after Jesus. And so today we're going to talk about the third sign of spiritual entropy and how we can intercept it. That was a long introduction, wasn't it? Turn with me to Judges chapter 6. Let me give you the the backstory. Israel is neck deep in the cycle of entropy, and they've been oppressed by the, the Midianites for seven years at this point. And this oppression is so terrible that God's people are forced to live in caves and they're starving because every time they plant crops, the Midianites come and they destroy the fields and they kill the livestock. And so the people are experiencing the pain that comes from their sin. It's the result of their own idolatry. It's the result of their own disobedience. They're experiencing the consequences. It's not God punishing them, right? It's not the devil intentionally attacking people. It's the result of sin. It's the result of the fall of mankind. They're experiencing the pain of their sin. And the people cry out to God for help. And he appears to a man named Gideon. And he's going to raise this man up as Israel's next deliverer. So we're going to start from verse 11. It says this. The angel of the Lord came and sat down under the oak in Ophrah. No, not Oprah. Ophrah. That belongs to Joash, the Abizrite, where his son Gideon was threshing wheat in a wine press to keep it from the Midianites. And when the angel of the Lord appeared to Gideon, he said, the Lord is with you, mighty warrior. When the angel of God visits Gideon, Gideon is threshing wheat in a wine press. Now, if you know anything about first century wheat threshing, or wine presses, this is actually pretty humorous because threshing wheat was a process of separating the wheat kernels from the, from the chaff, and it was typically done on a large flat surface so the wind could naturally blow away the chaff and leave the wheat. And a wine press was a large hole in the ground where people would throw grapes in there, and they would crush grapes, and there was a, a lower hole below that one where the juice would fall into, and that's how they would make wine. But because the Midianites are destroying all of Israel's food, Gideon is below ground threshing wheat in a wine press. Essentially, Gideon is hiding because he's afraid. He's afraid of the Midianites coming and taking away his food. So he hides in a wine press as he's threshing wheat. And he's making enough food just for about a couple people. You can't make much in a wine press. And as he's in the midst of hiding... The Lord shows up to Gideon and says, how you doing, mighty warrior? And this is what Gideon does next. Gideon looks behind him and he says, are you talking to me? This is what he says. He says, pardon me, my Lord. But if the Lord is with us, why has all this happened to us? Where are all his wonders that our ancestor told us about when they said, Did not the Lord bring us out of Egypt? But now the Lord has abandoned us and given us into the hand of Midian. Notice how Gideon shifts the blame to God. 
He says, God, you did this to us. You abandoned us. God, where have you been? That's God calling right there. He says, where have you been, Gideon? Mighty warrior. Gideon doesn't even recognize that it's his mess. That's the result of his people's sin. But God is so good and compassionate that he, he doesn't even get mad at Gideon. God doesn't even get mad at Gideon. Gideon is in this place where he's blame shifting. He's saying, God, you did this to us. You're, if you were really a loving God, if you really cared about us, you wouldn't have let this happen to us. He doesn't take ownership of the fact that it's his sin that brought this mess upon him. And this is what happens next. Verse 14. And the Lord turned to him and said, go in the strength you have. And save Israel out of Midian's hand. And I'm, am I not sending you? Pardon me, my lord, Gideon replied. But how can I save Israel? My clan is the weakest in Manasseh. And I'm the least in my family. The Lord answered, I will be with you. And you will strike down all the Midianites, leaving, leaving none alive. See, the mistake that Gideon made is the same mistake that we all make when we're faced with a God-sized task. The, the, the sign of spiritual entropy in this story is this, is that we focus on our abilities, strength, and status to accomplish God's purposes. Gideon focused on his abilities, on his strength, and his status to accomplish what God wanted to do. God says, I've got a plan, Gideon. I'm going to deliver Midian into your hand, and Gideon automatically defaults to what he has to offer. But God, I'm the least in my family. I'm the weakest in Manasseh. I don't have what it takes. And God says, no, Gideon, it's not about you. It's not about what you have and what you bring to the table. Stop talking about yourself. If you want to see your spiritual life deteriorate, if you want to see a nation or a family or a church begin to deteriorate, commit yourself to this question. Can we do it? Do we have enough strength to accomplish things that God wants on our own? No, our, our strength is never enough to accomplish God's purposes. But when we start asking as a church or as a, as a family, as a nation, we can, can we do it? Am I capable? I think I've got what it takes. When we stop relying on God and start relying on our own strength and our own ability, this is when we start to see our families and our nation, our spiritual lives begin to deteriorate. When God gave Gideon a vision for Israel's deliverance, Gideon responded, how am I going to do it? I'm the smallest and the weakest. I don't have the resources. I'm not smart enough or strong enough. I don't have the courage like that guy has. I don't have her people's skills. You've got the wrong person. How many of us do this when God invites us to something, when he calls us to something, when he commissions us, we look at other people and we say, oh, but I wish I had his communication or her people skills or his courage. I wish I had that, that much resources. I could do so much more if I had just those things. And God says, you're looking at all this wrong. I don't move based on what you bring to the table. I move because you're willing to depend on what I bring to the table. He didn't know it, but God chose him because of those exact reasons. God chose Gideon because he was the weakest. He was the smallest. When we read scripture, we know that God chooses the youngest 
David, King David, the man after God's own height, the mighty king who conquered Goliath, was the smallest in his family. He was the runt. He was the one out in the field that when Samuel showed up, he said, is this all you have? And his father said, no, no, that's it. Oh, yeah, that's right. We have David. Yeah, David's out there somewhere. But you don't want to talk to him. He's too small. He's not a king. God intentionally chooses the smallest and the weakest of us because it's in our weakness that he is strong. See, now, Paul understood this about God, and he wrote this in Corinthians. 2 Corinthians 12, 9 says, But he, God, said to me, Paul, my grace is sufficient for you, for my power is made perfect in strength. Nope. My power is made perfect in strength. In weakness. Therefore, I will boast all the more gladly about my weaknesses so that Christ's power may rest on me. Now, I don't know who needs to hear this, but I believe that somebody needs to be reminded of this today that God does not call the qualified, He qualifies the called. He doesn't call those who are the best equipped or the, has the most resources or the best at this and the best of that. He doesn't call those who are qualified, but he qualifies. He equips those that he chooses, that he calls to do a work for him. And like Gideon, we all have a tendency to look at our own strength as the means by which we're going to accomplish God's plans. And for the rest of our time today, I want to talk about three things to remember in order to intercept this sign of spiritual entropy? How can we stop the cycle? And how can we stop relying on our abilities and start depending on God just a little bit more? The first thing that we need to remember is this, is that God knows your real identity. He knows your real name. Gideon had an identity that was defined by his weakness. He was the smallest He was the weakest. Those are words from his own mouth. This is who I am. I am the smallest. I'm the weakest. I don't have what it takes. And he was hiding because he was afraid. He was a whiner and a blame shifter. But God shows up, and the first thing he does is he imparts a new identity to Gideon. He doesn't see a wimp. God sees a warrior. He looks at Gideon, and he sees a mighty warrior. And we've all been defined by labels given to us in the past. And some of us are still defined by the words spoken to us when we were children. And maybe, maybe a parent or a teacher or a peer told you that you were dumb or ugly or worthless or unwanted. And perhaps your spouse told you something in the middle of a fight. And those words have haunted you ever since. Come on, nobody's marriage is perfect. My wife and I, we've been there before. We've said stuff that we regret, and sometimes those words, they hurt, and they stick with you. They cling to you, and the devil wants to to attach those to your your identity. He wants to make that part of your identity. You know, I grew up up as an entertainer. I loved to sing and dance. My parents always asked me to sing a song when we had people over, and I loved doing it. I just loved to entertain people, and I've always had the desire to be a people pleaser. I want people to like me. And I've understood, I've understood how unhealthy this is. But I've always grown up with this desire. I want people to like me. I want to please people. And when I was in middle school, I, I made the mistake of asking somebody who was close to me if my brother was more attractive than I was. And this person told me, yeah, your brother's more attractive than you, but you have a, a sweeter heart. 
And I was like, I don't want a sweeter heart. What good is that? I want to be the most attractive. I don't want to have a kind heart. That means nothing to a middle school boy who's trying to get a girlfriend. And eventually, eventually this became part of my identity that I, I'm not attractive, that I, I don't have much to offer, that I'm, I'm insignificant in this area. There's other people out there who, who shine and I don't, and I don't shine. And this became part of my, my identity and it scarred me for years. I felt inadequate. I felt unattractive. And I don't need you to come up to me after church and pat me on the back and say, I think you're good looking pastor. I don't need it. Don't do it. Have you seen my wife? She is, she's, I, I did pretty good. All right. I know I married out of my league. You know, this, this scarred me. It became part of my identity. And, and, and I'm going to be vulnerable with you today, church. Eventually, this became so part of who I was that I began to turn to pornography when I was younger. Because it was, it was convenient. It was convenient, and, and I felt attractive, and the person on the screen couldn't tell me otherwise. I could receive, I could, I could get, and, and this person on the screen couldn't tell me otherwise. And after that, I began to label myself and I believed that because I was doing this, I was falling into this pattern of sin. I, I believed that I was unclean. I was unfit to be used by God. And when that addiction carried on for years, I began to think that I was lazy and undisciplined. How could I allow this to carry on for so long? If I just, if I read my Bible more, I know it would go away. If I went to church more, I know it would go away. If I just, if I... If I spent more time alone with God, I know this would go away. And I began to, to feel like I was dark, that I was, I was dirty, that I was unfit to be used by God. This is what shame does in our life, church. Shame separates you from God. It's what, it's what caused Adam and Eve to hide in the garden. When they sinned, they ran and they hid from God. It was shame that did that. But what did God do? He comes crashing through and he says, where are you guys? Where are you? Don't let, don't let. Don't let me be separated from you. He came, he came seeking a relationship with Adam and Eve, and he came seeking a relationship with me. When I was starting to think that I was ugly and dirty, unfit to be used by God, I was lazy. I was never going to get rid of this addiction. These labels, they kept me in depression. And in the midst of that season, God came, and he began instilling a new identity into me. And I, I remember growing up, I had... Uh, lots of friends whose names were David and Matthew and Micah and all these Bible names. And I always thought, this is so cool. Like, all my friends' names are in the Bible. And as a young man, I was like, I wonder where my name is in the Bible. And I'm looking it up. And I'm like, I can't find my name in the Bible. So I went to my mom and I said, Mom, all my friends, they have Bible names. Is my name in the Bible? And she goes, no, not, not really. And I said, well, where'd you come up with my name? She goes, I named you after a, an 80s soap opera called Dynasty. Uh, there was a character named Blake Carrington. Oh, my goodness. We've got people in the room that have watched it. I've never even seen the show. She goes, I named you after Blake Carrington. I thought it was a cool name. I was like, well, that's really profound. I'm going to carry that for the rest of my life. No, I, and I began to, I went on this, I went on this, this hunt to, to discover what my name means. God, who do you say that I am? What's my identity? And I went online, I started Googling my name. What, is, what does the name Blake mean? And there's two, there's, there's, there's uh, uh, 
the name Blake comes from one of two old English words. It's either Blake, B-L-A-C, or Blake, B-L-A-C, with a little hat over the A. And one of those words means dark and attractive. And attractive, remember that part. And one of those names means dark, and the other one means white and fair. Black and white. Dark and light. And I realized in that moment that I had been living with an identity that was dark, that was full of sin, that was full of filthiness, that God could never use me because I, was, I, was, I, w- I wasn't doing what God wanted me to do. And I, I was living under that identity, but God began to speak to my heart and say, no, 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 I don't see you like that. I see you as white, innocent, pure. You've been set free because of my son, Jesus. Start living with this identity, Blake. Start, start speaking this over your life. Start bringing this into your life. And I began to just, I surrounded myself with a group of men. And, and, and after years and years, we've, we're, on the, we're on the victory side of this battle. But there, there was an identity shift. And just like God came to Gideon, and he gave him a new identity right off the bat. He says, no, 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 you're not a wimp. You're a warrior. Gideon, you're not inadequate. You're everything I need to accomplish this mission. In the book of 2 Samuel, King David, he commits this hideous crime. He, one of his mighty men, did you know that Uriah, this, this man, this mighty man that fought alongside David, he was one of David's mighty men. He had a beautiful wife who David saw bathing on the roof, and he was consumed with lust, and he sent his men to forcibly retrieve her, and he impregnated her, he killed her husband, And then he made Bathsheba his wife. Just this terrible thing that King David did. And the baby that they had together, that first baby, died. And and David fasted and he mourned and he wept. And when the baby died, he got up and he cleaned himself. And David repented of his sin. And after he had repented of his sin, he, he had another baby with Bathsheba. And they named him Solomon. And Solomon's a good name. Solomon, it comes from the Hebrew word shalom, meaning peace. But Solomon is the product of one man's lustful and murderous heart. Today, if you discovered that your father had kidnapped your mother's former husband, or excuse me, had kidnapped your mother and killed her former husband, don't you think that would have a little bit of an effect on how you see yourself? My father did this terrible thing, and I'm the product of my father's terrible sin. Don't you think that you'd have an, that would have an effect on you? And some might think, well, Solomon is Bathsheba's kid. They would see Solomon walking around, and they'd say, well, that's Bathsheba's kid. He's a, he's a walking reminder of David's mistakes. But listen to what happened in 2 Samuel chapter 12. After the first baby died, it says, Then David comforted his wife Bathsheba, and he went to her and made love to her, and they gave birth. She gave birth to a son, and they named him Solomon, and the Lord loved him. And because the Lord loved him, he sent word through Nathan the prophet to name him Jedediah. The word the name Jedediah means God's beloved. God's beloved. He went to He went to Nathan the prophet, and he told him, hey, I want you to deliver this word 
to David and Solomon and Bathsheba and tell them that I don't see Solomon as the product of a man's mistakes. He is my beloved, and I love him. I have an identity for him. Listen, if you're here today and you feel unwanted, if you feel unworthy, if you feel inadequate, God has a name for you today. You are his beloved. You are loved by God. He has a name that he speaks over you. He has an identity that he speaks over you. He doesn't see a wimp. He sees a warrior. He doesn't see someone that cowers in fear. He says somebody, he sees somebody that he's raising up to overcome the evil one. God has a new identity for you today. The second thing that we need to remember. The first one is that God knows your identity and knows your real identity. The second thing is that if it's God's will, it's God's bill. Come on, look at somebody next to you. Say, if it's God's will, turn to somebody right now. If it's God's will, it's God's bill. When Gideon blames God for his situation, God responds by saying, Go in the strength you have and save Israel out of Midian's hand. Am I not sending you? In other words, Gideon, take what little strength you possess and I will provide the rest. Because I'm the one sending you. I'm the one with a mission. I'm the one with a plan. I'm the one with the resources. I'm the one who's calling you. So go with what little strength you possess and I'll take care of the the rest. It's my will, it's my bill. If it's God's will, then he's going to provide what is needed to accomplish the task. Have you been struggling to get something going? Have you hit a wall somewhere in your life? Have you stopped to ask yourself if this is what God wants for you in life? Maybe, maybe you're hitting a wall because you're outside of God's will. Maybe it's difficult and, and, and you're not moving anywhere. It doesn't feel like it's going anywhere because God's got other plans and you're moving outside of his will. You're doing it on your own strength. It's so important to spend time asking God what he wants. What are his desires? Because if you discover what he is after and what his will is, then he has to be the one to provide the way to see it accomplished. But if you pursue things that are outside of his will and outside of his design, you, you will most likely encounter dead ends. I just don't know why this job opportunity is not working out. I don't know why I can't get this thing to work. I don't know why I'm, this is just, isn't, sometimes you got to kick down the door. Sometimes you got to just press through. But sometimes you got to ask yourself, am I living in God's will? Is this what God wants for my life? You know, when we were moving our family to Afreda, we knew that God wanted us here. We heard God speak to us, but, but we had some obstacles that we needed to overcome in order to make it happen. We needed a house, first of all, that was big enough, big enough for our family of six and within our price range. And wouldn't you know it, we were looking at the house on a Saturday, and, uh, and, and we were going to make an offer the following Monday because nobody was in the office on Saturday. And so the following Monday, we were going to make an offer. And we, we go to make the offer on Monday, and we look online, and they had dropped the price to our exact asking, the, the price that we were going to offer. It was lower than the asking price, and, and when we went to go make an offer, they had actually dropped the price to exactly what we wanted to offer them. And we knew this is God making a way. He's, he's providing a way. Another obstacle we had to overcome is that, that uh, we were moving to a new place with lots of young kids. We didn't know anybody, and we needed help with our kids. 
And we didn't want to live too far away from family. That was one of my wife's non-negotiables, is I don't want to live more than six hours away from family. I want to be able, and it's even six hours is a long time away. You know, that's a far away. And, 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 uh, and one of the things we needed is we needed family to be close. We needed help with our kids. And my parents and my grandmother, Mary, they came to, to us and said, we, we feel like God is asking us to go where you go. And, and he's asking us to just to move with you. And to help out. I said, you don't even know where I'm going. At that, at that time, I hadn't even confirmed uh, Ephrata. You don't even know where I'm going. They said, yeah, we don't care. Just let us know where we're going and we'll start looking for houses and we'll, we'll, we'll just come wherever you go. And I told my dad, I remember the day, I said, dad, we're going to Ephrata. And he goes, Ephrata? <laughs> now my dad is a member at the Lakeview Golf Club. And he's like, I love living here. I go golfing all the time. It's sunny all the time. My dad loves it here. I always tell my parents, hey, thanks, guys, for dropping everything and moving with us. And my dad says, I'm loving this. I'm loving golfing all the time. My mom's, you, you've got a great job at Grant County, integrated service. But God made a way. God provided a way. He, he overcame those obstacles. The third thing is this. That prayer is an invitation to access God's resources. We have to remember how important prayer is. That it's an invitation to access God's infinite resources. I love this quote by A.W. Tozer. He says this, Whatever God can do, faith can do. And whatever faith can do, prayer can do when it is offered in faith. An invitation to prayer is therefore an invitation to omnipotence. For prayer engages the omnipotent God and brings him into our human affairs. Nothing is impossible to the Christian who prays in faith, just as nothing is impossible with God. This generation is yet to prove all that prayer can do for believing men and women. Prayer is an invitation to God's infinite resources. When prayer is offered in faith, you're asking God for access to everything he has. And Gideon did not begin his journey with much faith. He was so uncertain of God's plan that he actually asked to test God in verse 36. He laid out a wool fleece on the ground overnight, and he asked God to make the fleece wet and the ground around it dry. And the next day he wakes up and he squeezes the fleece with the, with the, uh, he, sque- he squeezes the fleece and filled a bowl with dew from the night before. And then he says, oh, but God, let me do it one more time. Let me test you one more time. And he asked God this time to make the fleece dry and to make the ground wet. And I think he just needed the fleece to wear. So he needed God to dry it quick and he didn't have a dryer. <laughs> God, I need you to make this fleece dry for me now. You made it wet. And he lays the, the fleece out, and he wakes up the next day, and the fleece is dry, and the ground all around it is wet. And many people in the church, we use the term, well, I'm setting out the fleece. We lay out the fleece, and we say this as a way to say that we're prayerfully considering what God is asking them to do. But the Bible makes it clear that this is not a behavior that believers should follow. We're not supposed to lay out the fleece. Gideon says to God, if you will save Israel by my hand as you have promised. Notice that God has already promised to Gideon that he is going to deliver 
the Midianites into Israel's hand. He's already made the promise. He's already confirmed the victory. But Gideon still needs more evidence. He needs a test. The fleece is not an expression of trust. It's an expression of weak faith and immaturity. When God makes a promise, he expects us to live as though it's already been done. No doubts, no questions, just joyful expectation and joyful obedience. What's God going to do? How's he going to do it? I'm looking forward to seeing how God ends this story. But he made me a promise. He told me this. His word says this. We look at scripture and we can see the promises of God laid out all throughout scripture. And if we would just cling to those promises and say, yes, God, I trust that what you say in your word is going to come true. I don't need to test you. I don't need to see if this is for me. You already said it's for me. You already promised it to me. You've already given it to me. God, I'm going to rely on your infinite resources. I'm going to rely on what you can do. And I'm going to partner with you in prayer, asking for you to give those resources towards the situation that I'm experiencing right now. God said, you will defeat the Midianites because I am going with you. Let me ask you this morning, what promises has God spoken over you? And what would it look like to live believing that everything that God speaks is already done? Everything that God says in his word is already done. You might not see the manifestation of it right away. Just like Samuel came to to David and anointed him as the king of Israel 14 years before he actually sat on the throne. He waited for 14 years. It was the promise of God he had been given. He knew he was the next king. And now is just time to wait for the manifestation of that. What promises of God has God given you over your life? We're going to take communion now. And one of the promises that God says in his word is that you have been cleansed by his blood when you ask for forgiveness. You have been made right with God. You have been given an access to a, a vibrant, beautiful relationship with God because of what Jesus did on the cross. But oftentimes what we do is we make mistakes and we sin and we push ourselves farther and farther away from God. And we think that there's something that we have to do on our own strength to make it right. We think to ourselves, okay, you know what? I'm going to take a couple weeks off. I'm not going to come to church because I, need to, I just need to figure this out on my own. I'm going to isolate I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to just try to, to buckle down and maybe try to read my Bible on my own. And, and then when I come to church, I'm going to wait for the pastor to, to do a really powerful altar call. And then I'll come running to the altar with tears in my eyes, and I'll repent then. There's got to be something there. I've got I've to do something. I've got to wait for a, a, a great speaker to come to town, or I've got to wait for this conference, or I've got to wait for... And we think that there's something that we have to do in order to be made right in God's eyes. But literally, the word repent just means to turn around. That's all you have to do. Is that when you're facing sin, and when you're facing, when you're walking a direction, Jesus says to repent, what he's saying is, you just need to turn around. Stop walking towards that. Start walking back towards Jesus. Start walking the other direction. And by faith, we believe that we are justified. 
That word means just as if I'd never sinned. When God looks at you, he sees somebody who has been made right. He sees somebody who is made in his image, who's clothed in the righteousness of Jesus. He doesn't see somebody who's filthy and messes up over and over again. But there's people, even here today, that come to God. Kirk, can I have one of those little communion cups? I forgot to get myself one. I'll raise my hand. God wants us today to remember that his word says that when you ask, you are forgiven. That when you come to him, you're made right. And so thank you. So would you take, take out the bottom? There's a little cracker in the bottom of this. And this little wafer represents the body of Christ. I can't get it out. This represents the body of Christ. And before Jesus was arrested and went to the cross, he had a meal with his disciples. And at this meal, he, he broke the bread, and they drank from a cup of, of wine. And he held up the bread, and he told his disciples, he said, this is my body that is broken from, for you. And then he said, do this in remembrance of me. Take this in remembrance of me. And they broke the bread, and they took this together. And Jesus was telling his disciples that my body is broken for you so that your body can be whole, so that you can experience freedom. Your emotional life can be set free. Your mental life can be set free. Your physical life can be set free. Jesus, his body was broken on the cross so that you can experience freedom. That's a promise of God that he's given you today. And if you receive that in faith, it's yours. It's yours. And it's not by our strength. We didn't do anything to deserve it. We didn't do anything to earn it. But while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. He did it on his own, in his own ability, in his own power. So would you hold up the bread with me? Father, we thank you that you sent your son Jesus to be broken for us. That you sent your son Jesus to die on the cross so that we could be set free from sin. That we could be fully healed. We receive this gift in faith. We believe it in faith. And Lord, we, we take this as, as, as an act of intimacy with you. We realign our hearts and our minds. And Lord, we... We identify with your, with your death. Just as Jesus died on the cross, there has to be a death in every single one of us. There has to be a, a, a dying to our old self, a dying to our old ways. And, Lord, we, we partner with Jesus in that death as we partner with him in his resurrection. So thank you, Jesus, for your body that was broken. Let's take it together. I'm going to take the cup. Jesus said that this cup represents my blood that was poured out for the forgiveness of your sin. And there's nothing, you know, I'm somebody who, who tends to isolate. I'm somebody who tends, when I make a mistake, when I do something wrong, I tend to try and try and try on my own ability. Nobody else needs to know this. I'm just going to do it on my own. I'm just going to figure it out. And no matter how hard we try, no matter how hard we push, it's never enough. But Jesus says, my blood is enough. Oh, but pastor, you don't know the things that I've done. Pastor, you don't know. You don't know what I haven't told anybody. I don't know if Jesus can forgive me of that sin. Now, if, if you're sitting here, you're thinking that what you're actually saying is, my, is Jesus' blood was good enough for everybody else's sin, but my sin is more powerful than the blood of Jesus. It wasn't good enough for my sin. And that's arrogance. That's pride. And God wants us to submit 
to the sacrifice of Jesus, to submit to the blood of Jesus and say, your blood was enough for my sin. It was enough because you knew on the day that you died, you knew you were thinking about me. You knew what I was going to do. Father, we receive the forgiveness of, your, of our sins. We thank you that we've been justified. You have redeemed us with your blood. You, have, you, you look at us and you no longer see somebody who is your enemy. You see a friend. You see a child. Lord, we couldn't do this without you. We couldn't do this without the sacrifice of Jesus. And we thank you. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Let's take it together. Would you stand with me, church? I pray that the Lord blesses you today. I pray that his face would shine upon you. He would give you peace. And I pray that he would continually fill you with his Holy Spirit and inspire you for what he has for you. Remember to rely on his ability, to rely on his strength and not your own. God bless you. We love you. We'll see you next week.